morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a perfectly adequate show this morning. Emily, what do we got? Perfectly adequate and absolutely packed. We have a big lineup today. Columnist for the Federalist, Eddie Scarry, is going to be joining us to discuss, quote, why liberals are more likely to be maladjusted wet blankets. Ryan, I'll be uh, really excited to get your take on that topic. Then senior foreign policy writer at Vox, Jonathan Geyer, will be here to dig into Ukraine's foreign lobbying blitz. It's a fascinating story. Tom Rogan's also going to join us to help break down new information surrounding the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akko. That's a story we've been on quite a bit. Um, and right now, we're coming to you with breaking news from all over the world. The jobs numbers that were highly anticipated have just been announced as of 8.30 this morning. The Labor Department said it, that employers added 372,000 new jobs in June, a fairly steady unemployment employment rate at 3.6%. Um, you know, I would say the economy is, is, is still not great, obviously, um, but these numbers are better than some folks expected them to be. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has also announced this week, you, you probably haven't missed the story because it's been everywhere, there was a huge wave of resignations in the UK this week. And on the heels of that, Boris Johnson himself has resigned. He's announced that he'll stay in office, in the office of Prime Minister, until he finds a successor. And then and just overnight, uh, we learned that former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was shot and killed while giving a campaign speech in the city of Nara. He was 67 years old. Abe was immediately brought to a hospital, but doctors struggled to save him. He was pronounced dead five and a half hours after gunshots first rang out. A suspect was apprehended at the scene of the shooting. Japanese media reports that the media that the unidentified 41-year-old man opened fire on Abe using a homemade rifle. This is the first assassination of a sitting or former Japanese premier since 1936. Abe served two terms of, as Japan's prime minister, most recently stepping down in 2020 due to poor health. Ryan, I'm eager to get your take on all of this and particularly the breaking news out of Japan. Uh, the video footage that we have of this assassination is graphic. Abe is shot in the back. Guns are very, gun violence itself is very, very rare in Japan. I think as of 2020, maybe it was 2021, only 10 people were killed in, uh, by firearms in Japan in 2021. And so now you have the prime minister um, actually being killed uh, by what appears to be a homemade rifle. Uh, Abe, pretty well-known and uh, pretty well-respected around the world, the longest-serving prime minister of Japan. What's your take? Yeah, right. There's no question that a, a large-sized American city sees more gun deaths in, uh, in a couple of weeks or a month than Japan sees across the entire country, across an entire year. And so the reports from Japan are that people are, are in shock. We know we know from footage from the event and from witness testimony that it was a makeshift gun, a a, whole, a homemade gun. The, the the first the first shot uh, appears not to have have worked as well as the second one, which seems to be seems to have been the fatal blow. All we know is that the the shooter had quote grievances with Abe. We don't we don't know what those those grievances are. Abe leaves behind uh, a rather incredible legacy. This is a uh, this is a uh, you know what what Steve Bannon called you know Trump before Trump. He was you know first elected as uh, as premier back in 2006, but then elected again in 2012, and then served all the way from 2012 to 2020. So overlapped both the Obama and the Trump administrations. And, and Bannon and other nationalists you know described him as the kind of the first 
you know, ultra nationalists to to, you know, of, of this wave to rise to the leader, leader, a leadership position in our country and remain extraordinarily popular. He was you know, he was reelected in, in landslides every every time and only stepped down because of because of health concerns. He wasn't driven from office in that direction. And he had that com- that combination of Bannon, Bannon politics, the ultra nationalism with some ec- with some economic uh, populism mixed into it. And so, uh, you know, it, it's 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 a shock you know, ar- around the world. It's a it's you know, particularly a shock in Japan, which doesn't see gun violence. But it, I think it also you know, raises the specter of whether or not you know, we're heading into a, a wave of these types of uh, assassinations around the world. What, what was your reaction to it? Well, and that's what I wanted to transition the conversation to, because uh, immediately what I started hearing from just people uh, in my circles reacting was, Echoes of World War One um, is what people said right away, and we forget historically sometimes that the these events can be more destabilizing in time. The more we learn about motives, and the more the world reacts, the the stabilization um, that might feel you know in in the moment, um, if there's any sense of stability in the moment, it can actually be eroded over time as the world kind of reacts to the news. Um, and and the populist question is an interesting one. The the wave of nationalism and populism is an interesting question when it comes to Abe because I think like a lot of other leaders, you can maybe even look at Boris Johnson. Um, he, there's a he doesn't fit neatly into the sort of uh, box and. Or the dichotomy, the political ideological dichotomy, left and right, um, or the the right populist model that we try to apply, because a lot of these populists have sort of broke that mold and getting into this question of taking a step back and trying to understand this from a global perspective, Ryan, um, it does, the world feels unstable right now. I don't think there's any question yeah. about that. Um, when you have what's come, the news out of the UK, the American economy feels extremely unstable. The country itself feels very unstable. Um, and now you have a, a shocking act of violence in one of the safest countries in the world. How do you think this reverberates in sort of geopolitics? Um, Abe himself was a, a critic of China. He was not on the uh, Chinese's best side, we'll say that, that much. And we don't know what motives are. We don't know any of that yet. Um, and it may continue to develop. It, it likely will. But how do you think this does reverberate sort of in geopolitics over the next few weeks? Well, we're getting r- reports that the Chinese government is actually working hard to tamp down celebrations in China. Right. Uh, because you know, because ob- it's obviously just you know deeply offensive at at this moment for anybody to be to be celebrating when it it, it goes to this kind of raw uh, tension that existed uh, between Abe and between the Chinese government and the Chinese people as as well because you know the the, the ultra nationalism that he was a part of sometimes didn't make distinctions between you know people and and governments around around the region and so. You know, I think how how that plays out in China certainly will affect you know how the, how relations uh, you know go go forward. But you're right you're right that he broke the mold of the kind of traditional kind of right wing conservative, like the you know what we think of as the kind of Bush era, you know George H W or George W Bush. You know, for you know for a long time around the world, you know, and and particularly in the United States and Europe and Japan, you had very similar you know party you know. Par- party structures, even though you had multiple parties in some countries, two parties in this system, but you had you had a very similar ideological breakdown across the spectrum. And Japan in particular, you know, faced this 
uh, what you know, 20 years of, of basically no economic growth, as 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 the Japanese as the Japanese government focused on, uh, you know, resisting any deficit spending, and and there and so th- there was a lot. I think there was a lot of anger that was produced. That, you know, a lot of econ- economic anxiety, as we called it over here in the United States, that was produced by the, this kind of you know lost decade or lost decades. Uh, you know, and so Abe crafted his his ultra nationalism with mixed in with with populism, economic populism as he as a reaction to that and and was able and was able to then kind of grow because of it. And you really see as Bannon said, you, you see Trump, you know, four years later, really adopt a lot of the same uh, same politics, a lot of the same techniques as as he did and and then you you see it elsewhere around the world like this is now he's kind of created a new mold and you can fit that mold on a lot of leaders around the around the world and i think you've you've already seen in regard to boris johnson sort of celebrations from the neoliberal community saying this is this is you cannot run i read this in axios this morning already like you the the takeaway here is that you can no longer campaign on brexit and win elections which is i i mean it's an interesting perspective and obviously this is a huge uh this puts a huge damper on the movement that's sort of built up around that but to your point about abe boris johnson was also elected in this nationalist wave um, um, in a in a different mm-hmm. sense, and that's what happens when the world is destabilized by um, you know reckless financial behavior um, from American elites on Wall Street and et cetera. We we sort of think of of the recession as being something of the past, but in so many ways we're still reeling from it. The White House put out uh, President Biden's statement this morning on. Uh, Abe, he said, I am stunned, outraged, and deeply saddened by the news that my friend uh, Abe Shinzo was shot and killed while campaigning. He was a champion of the alliance between our nations and the friendship between our people. The longest serving Japanese prime minister, his vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific will endure. The United States stands with Japan. He also invoked gun violence, which I thought was uh, sort of odd and unnecessary, but this needn't turn into a debate about American gun policy. Um, I don't think that would be appropriate. Ryan, if I could just give you, like, if I could just throw two quick takes at you. First of all, the jobs numbers, better than I think some folks expected them to be, fairly steady unemployment number, um, up jobs, and the the shrinking wasn't terrible. What do you make of them? Yeah. The uh, Dow Jones said they expected about 250,000 jobs this month. Instead, we got, you know, 370, a, a huge, you know, kind of overshooting. And and so, uh, you know, the, the economy continues to surge forward when it comes to jobs. And I do and I do worry that, you know, in a year or two, we might look back as we're losing, you know, three or four hundred thousand jobs a month and and start to look at the economy we have now and say, Wow, jobs! It was it was nice when there were more jobs. Uh, you know, a lot of these jobs are miserable, um, as particularly the jobs in in retail, as as you're seeing from this, the the increasingly angry public is making these making these retail jobs that were already difficult before the pandemic. You know that that much more difficult, particularly as new variants, the BA five now, you know, whipping whipping back through. But I think people are for are are forgetting. Uh, you know what what an economy can be like that is that is retracting. You know there is it, it appears like uh, the Federal Reserve is is dead set on sending this economy back into a recession to to do something about inflation. 
uh, and you, you saw that their uh, aggressive interest rate moves just by the sparking the fear of recession have already sent oil futures plummeting. Uh, I, I took my car to the station yesterday and only filled it up halfway because gas prices are plummeting so much. You know, it's expected that, it, you know, a lot of places are going to be, you know, under four dollars, approaching three, uh, perhaps falling even further, you know, over the next over the next several weeks. We'll see. We'll see what what happens there. But if in order to get those gas prices down, uh, the Federal Reserve end, ends up wiping away millions of jobs, I think we'll we'll regret that. I mean, what what's your read on on the on these jobs numbers and how it interacts with with inflation and 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 to tie it into Boris Johnson? The UK is also seeing nine percent inflation. Yes, hard for hard for Boris Johnson to blame that on Biden, and what? so and they're also you know he's also suffering from you know COVID related uh, politics, the party gate, uh, probably the you know he's you know he, the, you know Russia Russia Ukraine not not terribly going well for Boris Johnson either, uh, so, and so he's finding himself also in an ungovernable situation. That's the second point I was going to, uh, but you already covered it. I was, I was going to throw that to you as well. But yeah, B- Boris Johnson, obviously. So our, our job numbers, we're still digging ourselves out of this COVID hole while there's a ground war in Europe. Boris Johnson has directed a lot of resources to Ukraine, is uh, sort of popular with the Ukrainian people. And also his popularity suffered a lot under COVID controversies. Um, and so these, these forces are combining. Um, and, and I think it is all contributing to the sense of instability that people around the world are feeling. So with that, we will tell you what is on our radars next. All right, Ryan, you packed your radar, you brought it to Vermont. Now I've got to know what's on it. (laughs) Delivering it from Vermont. It's on Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and one of the most important reforms to the Espionage Act that we've seen since the law was created. So the Espionage Act, which, which, as you guys know, is a dr- draconian and, if you ask me, unconstitutional law that is totalitarian in nature and really has no place in a free society. And the Espionage Act has gone from what its name suggests, which is fighting against foreign spying on U.S. soil, to what it is now, which is a tool for the government to prosecute whistleblowers and now publishers for exposing government crimes and abuses. It's the law they're using to prosecute Julian Assange and the same one they tried to throw at Daniel Ellsberg. Now, reforming the Espionage Act goes directly against the power of the intelligence and national security apparatus, so it's enormously difficult. But Tlaib has crafted her amendment in a way that feels impossible for reasonable people to disagree with. Now, to understand the amendment, let's walk through how the act is so vague in the first place, which is what makes it so dangerous. So Tlaib, Tlaib's measure amends Section 793 of Title 18, which is a reference to the Espionage Act. So if we open up the U.S. Code and head to Section 793, we find the original language. Now, Tlaib targets a handful of dangerously loose phrases, phrases in the law. One of them is, quote, whoever. In other words, it applies to everybody. The other is, quote, for reason to believe. And I'll explain why that's so dangerous. Now, the law as written applies to, quote, whoever, for the purpose of obtaining information respecting the national defense with intent or reason to believe that the information is to be used to the injury of the United States. So to take one example, Daniel Ellsberg had no intent to harm the United States. He was trying to help the American people by exposing the crimes behind the Vietnam War. But prosecutors could argue that he had, quote, reason to believe that other people would use the information, quote, 
to the injury of the United States. And frankly, you can make that argument about any criticism of the United States. So if you're criticizing U.S. policy and referencing classified information, that makes you guilty of breaking this law. Now, technically, just me referencing public information like the Snowden links or information published by WikiLeaks is a violation of the Espionage Act. So Tlaib's amendment strikes the phrase or reason to believe and replaces it with, quote, specific intent. So prosecutors would have to prove that the person breaking the Espionage Act was really doing espionage for a foreign government or some hostile terror group. Now, secondly, Tlaib goes after who can be charged for leaking and for leaking what. So Julian Assange and the editors of The Intercept or the editors of The New York Times, for instance, never took a government job and never agreed to protect classified information. That means we're all protected by the First Amendment. There's no exception to the First Amendment that says we have freedom of speech or freedom of the press, except when it's something the government doesn't want published. That would defeat the entire purpose of the First Amendment because the government can classify anything it wants with no checks or balances. And the government does classify an absurd amount of things, including things like the soup of the day at the CIA cafeteria. So Tlaib amends whoever in one section to an individual who is a covered person. In other words, somebody who has signed up to work for the government. And in another section, she changes whoever to a foreign agent who, again, she's trying to move the law back to what it claims it's doing. She also amends the law so that only things that are, quote, properly classified are covered. An example of something properly classified would be, say, the nuclear codes. An example of something not properly classified would be the soup of the day or, say, evidence of a U.S. war crime. Now, a zealous prosecutor could still, under this amended law, charge somebody like Daniel Ellsberg or Reality Winner or Daniel Hale because they had clearances and agreed not to leak. And they could try to make an argument to a jury that they did intend to specifically harm the U.S. So Tlaib adds another important amendment. Now, under current law, a defendant like Rowley Winner or Hale is banned from telling the jury why they leaked information. So the jury has no way to know if they're dealing with a whistleblower who, has, who was moved by their conscience to act. It's a piece of the law that makes it basically impossible to defend yourself. And it's why whistleblowers rarely go to trial and just plead guilty instead. So Tlaib's amendment says, a defendant charged with an offense under Section 793 or 798, which is also Espionage Act, shall be permitted to testify about their purpose for engaging in the prohibited conduct. It is an affirmative defense to a charge under Section 793 or 798 that the defendant engaged in the prohibited conduct for the purpose of disclosing to the public any violation of any law, rule, or regulation, or gross mismanagement, a gross waste of funds, an abuse of authority, or a substantial and specific danger to public health or safety. So it would be left to hear from a jury directly from a whistleblower. It would, it would be left for a jury to hear directly from a whistleblower why they felt compelled to leak or how the public benefited from that leak. To me, that's entirely fair. If the jury hears them out and thinks that what they leaked was still dangerous and should have been kept secret, then they're within their rights to convict. But if they think the government was doing something wrong and the person acted heroically, they can acquit that whistleblower. That puts pressure on the government not to commit crimes because the chance will have the whistle blown goes up. Now, Emily, I suspect that if uh, if Representative Tlaib you know, could, re could, could rewrite on her own the Espionage Act, she would go a lot further uh, than she would with this because she doesn't want to. I don't think she wants to leave any room for whistleblowers to even have a chance at getting getting prosecuted. 
But this feels like a real attempt to get an actual conversation started and say and, and to put and to put a few things on the table that are just on their face seem entirely unobjectionable. It's it, it only seems American that if somebody is charged with leaking classified information, that they should have the right from the defendant's table to tell the jury specifically why they did that. And I think a lot of people don't know that whistleblowers currently don't even have that right. Absolutely. It's, it seems like a very common sense uh, rewriting of how we behave here, or how the government behaves here. And if ever, if ever there were, I think, a fertile ground for bipartisan conversation to sort of spring up about this, I think it's, it's right now. I'd be super curious as to how Rand Paul would uh, receive modifications along the lines of what Talib is proposing. Um, there's there's probably a lot of room for conversation, but it does seem very common sense. And, and Ryan, I'm curious because a lot of people think about Daniel Ellsberg and you know these sort of questions, WikiLeaks, about what happens after they leak, right? The the legal action that happens after the leak. But leakers, whistleblowers, I should say, I don't know why I just said leak. <laughs> uh, whistleblowers are often um, that was not like a Freudian slip or anything. But whistleblowers are often actually uh, very savvy people who understand the law. And I'm curious from your perspective how changes like this would, would they create less of a chill for people to bring forward necessary information, salient information that they think is in the public's interest that is otherwise classified? Do you think this would have a real effect on people's comfort um, bringing information forward? I, I think it would because I think that you know the, the some of the some people who are going to blow the whistle are just so compelled by their conscience that they're going to do it even if it means that they spend the rest of their life in maximum security prison and even if they know that that's a significant you know that that's a significant possibility there are those you know select few number of people that exist but that's by, by no means the majority of people and so I think most people have now witnessed enough whistleblowers being prosecuted that they that they understand that even if they are you know if they have 100% public support or 90% public support behind them even if what they released leads to the prosecution of of people uh, for for wrongdoing that they're they know that they're not allowed to tell a jury that and that if the federal government for be out of spite embarrassment uh, to send a message for whatever reason they decide to prosecute that they that they basically can win every every single one of those cases because all they have to show a jury is this was classified information this person released this classified information uh, you know op open and shut and oftentimes you'll find juries saying that, that if they had known more at the time you know they would they would have thought about this case differently you saw a lot of this actually as states began legalizing medical marijuana kind of in the 2000s and the federal government was still prosecuting uh, people that opened up medical marijuana shops sometimes prosecuting individual patients and you'd have these you know people in their 60s and 70s with cancer going to court for these marijuana charges and they were barred from offering what's called this affirmative defense they could not tell the jury that the reason that they were growing, say, six plants of marijuana in their backyard, not because they were some massive drug dealer, but because they had a state, you know, the, the, the state had legalized medical marijuana and they were using it for their cancer under the recommendation of their doctor. And you had a bunch of juries who then, after they learned that they had convicted cancer patients, 
uh, you know, spoke out publicly and said, this is, this is obscene. You know, we, we, you know, this, this should be overturned. We feel horrible about what we've been involved with. And so you have a similar thing here that, that juries want all of the information. Mm -hmm. They want to know that Dan, what, why did Daniel Hale release information about all the civilians who were being killed in the drone program? And then if, if the jury still says, you know, this is something that should have stayed classified, you know, they would be in the right to convict. But most juries, I mean, most people would say, no, the, the government was lying and the public had a right to know this information. Yeah, and that's why I think it seems common sense, because litigating those questions in front of a jury actually, if anything, seems mm. helpful. Having that conversation in front of a jury, um, it, it seems completely productive um, to these discussions. And I would probably disagree with you on some of the treatment of material from Assange and Snowden and all of that stuff. And, you know, that conversation in front of a jury, that's a more productive way, I think, legally mm. to, to go about litigating this. So, Ryan, thank you so much for that, Radar. Super interesting. People aren't talking about Tlaib's proposal, um, and we will get into what's on my radar after this. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, the New York Times asked Republican Congresswoman Myra Flores, the first Mexican-born woman sworn into Congress, about the January 6th hearings this week. Quote, honestly, my district doesn't care about that, replied Flores in an article published this week. My district is struggling to pay their bills. That's what we're supposed to be focusing on. Now, polling bears that perspective out. Voters say their top concerns right now are mostly economic. The Times referred to Flores as, quote, a far-right Hispanic in the headline of its profile on her and other Hispanic Republican women. Now, as Glenn Greenwald pointed out on Twitter, the Times is really struggling to reconcile its own coverage of the Trump-era Republican Party with the reality that Democrats are losing support from minority voters, and some of that's going to Republicans. In their Times story, Democrat Ruben Galejo argues that Flores does not, quote, represent mainstream Hispanic voters. Maybe so, but the head of Galejo's party certainly doesn't either. A Quinnipiac poll conducted in June put Biden's approval rating at 24 and 49 percent with Hispanic and black voters, respectively. That is to say, at a time when Dem-leaning political elites are shrieking louder than ever that conservatism is necessarily bigotry, minorities are growing less supportive of Democrats. And again, some of that support is going to Republicans. Is it because Democrats aren't doing enough? I'm sure that explains part of the party's low numbers. But Flores is a great example because she flipped her district red, meaning people affirmatively pulled the lever for a Republican. Trump's numbers happen to be surprisingly decent in her Rio Grande Valley as well. The Times seems to have, and that's by the way in 2020, the Times seems to have deemed Flores, quote, far right because she used QAnon hashtags on social media posts and refuses to say that Biden was legitimately elected. He did, of course, win the election, but decent, hardworking, taxpaying people around the country don't agree. They've been lied to by our political establishment for decades. They lost relatives and loved ones in Iraq and Afghanistan. They suffered in 2008 and 2020. For some people, that makes an AOC look more attractive. For others, it makes politicians like Flores, who I don't think is being totally honest about why she used those QAnon hashtags, look more attractive too. Federalist 57 makes a really interesting point about the House of Representatives. 
quote, who are the electors of the federal representatives, it reads, not the rich more than the poor, not the learned more than the ignorant, not the haughty heirs of distinguished names more than the humble sons of obscurity and unpropitious fortune. The electors are to be the great body of the people of the United States. Then it continues, no qualification of wealth, of birth, of religious faith, or of civil profession is permitted to fetter the judgment or disappoint the inclination of the people. That is a hard pill for the ruling class in DC especially to swallow. It was not executed perfectly at the time of the founding, that is for sure. But those principles set us up with a system that empowers people who truly represent average Americans, left or right, to have a vote in Washington. That principle was profoundly radical for the time that it was written. But rather than grappling with their role in the institutional distrust that's pushed Flores and her district right or sent, let's say, Joe Crowley packing, our elites have nothing but contempt for people who think like Flores. They don't understand it, but they know that it's beneath them. Now, neither Marjorie Taylor Greene nor Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are my favorite members of Congress. I remember actually after Cori Bush won her primary, Crystal and I interviewed her right here the next morning. I disagree with Bush on a lot, but I know she speaks for people in her district who have suffered. She'll of course get nicer coverage than Flores will, but she won't be taken seriously by everyone at the DNC. Now enter Ben Smith. His interview with Tucker Carlson yesterday made headlines, and it should be taught in journalism classes as an example of what social scientists have been warning about for years, elite sorting. Tucker is one of the few true class traders in media, but let's assume for the sake of argument that everything he says and believes is wrong. Let's just put that assumption out there. Watch Smith question him. He asks if Tucker believes white people are superior. He asks what Tucker means by, quote, legacy American, and he asks about replacement theory. Take a look at this. I'm, I'm interviewing you. you Does that sound racist to you? You just suggested I'm a white supremacist. You know, that, I yeah, I find, like, I, yeah, I found that clip disturbing. I think the, you know, the, 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 the language of replacement theory, which you've popularized, the language of replacement theory is like specifically the language used by, by neo-Nazis to recruit people to their cause. It has been, obviously, I'm not suggesting some straight line between words and actions, but it is the a phrase I'm that has been used by mass shooters. I wonder, do you don't have any so compunction or regret no about popularizing believes. that? This is why you are considered correctly a propagandist and not a journalist, because I just explained in detail, with total sincerity, what I believe. You ignored it and invoked mass shooters. So that's not what you I just asked did. you how you felt about it. Let's. I actually do want to ask well, about something. About I, I, I'd, like to ask about, I'd like to ask <laughs> about. I'd like to ask about something that actually I think we probably this is have more common how ground. How ridiculous on. you are, and I think it's evident to any fair person watching. I'm. I guess I'm trying to give you an opportunity to respond to things no, that have been not. said and written I, about you, but let's move like, to something that I'm really not looking to have like, a Does this sound like racist ideology? You. And you're like, oh, I, I'm disturbed by the Media Matters clip for eight seconds. Like, the, um, are you being serious? Okay, so media elites operate on these like crude stereotypes of the people with whom they disagree. And that clip is great because it shows how easily those stereotypes are demolished when you bring them face to face with the actual people being demonized. It shows the worldview there is kind of a house of cards. And, and Smith is a smart guy. He actually started the interview by saying he watches Tucker's show. That gives him an advantage over some other journalists, to be sure. But when you come to a task like that with the lens of identity politics fixed on your, your eyes, you'll never really see critics fairly because that lens discredits critics 
as bigots, bigots. That is built into the premise of the lens, actually. People who dissent from every tenet of cultural leftism are perpetuating bigotry or insufficiently anti-racist and are thus bigots themselves. You saw this play out with J.K. Rowling. Now, at one point, Carlson told Smith, quote, this is why you are considered correctly a propagandist and not a journalist, because I just explained in detail with total sincerity what I believe. You ignored it and invoked mass suitors. This is revealing how ridiculous you are, and I think it's evident to any fair person watching. I would hope so. But Smith is not intentionally a propagandist. It recalls Noam Chomsky's famous 1996 interview with Andrew Marr. Quote, how do you know I'm self-censoring, Marr asked. Quote, I'm not saying you're self-censoring, said Chomsky. I'm sure you believe everything you say. But what I'm saying is if you believed something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting, said Chomsky. Now, Smith isn't trying to carry water for Democrats or elites. He's not doing it on purpose, but it's actually fundamental to what he does. And what's so frustrating is that it doesn't have to be. Again, let's, for the sake of argument, imagine Tucker Carlson is wrong about absolutely everything he says. Probably a lot of you agree with that. Is he a bigot? Well, the difference between a crackpot and a bigot is vast and meaningful. But even after the host of Celebrity Apprentice beat the former Secretary of State in a presidential election, the media is she would win easily. They refuse to see anything but illegitimacy and bigotry in the people who think differently from them. It will create, actually, more Myra Floreses despite their best efforts. Ryan, uh, Ben Smith's been around the sort of media landscape, and Tucker Carlson has as well, for a very long time. And this interview was just such a good example of somebody trying really hard to make a point that crumbled. Um, and again, think whatever you want about Tucker Carlson, his answers and substance to the questions Smith was making, I think were, were much more substantive than the questions themselves. And it's a good example of how you end up with New the New York Times going from saying the Republican Party is the party uh, that is like necessarily perpetuating bigotry, et cetera, to a, uh, a surge of Hispanics identifying as Republicans, and the Times isn't able to reconcile those two things, and Smith isn't able to reconcile his idea of what the Republican Party is with what voters actually believe, and I think that's why it was so hard for him to engage with Tucker, but I'm curious for what your take was on the interview. Well, I think it's hard for him to engage with Tucker because Tucker's saying like five different things, all of which contradict the, themselves, but he's doing it very effectively and very well. It, you know, it, it goes to how in this format of a, of a back and forth where he's on the video, uh, he's, you know, he's been doing this for years. He's, he's extremely, Tucker Carlson is very talented at this, that he doesn't have to make sense to kind of look like it's, he's making mincemeat of his, of his interviewer. But like, just try to unpack what he's saying here. First of all, he says, you know, he's not really familiar with this replacement theory. Uh, he's, second of all, he says that the Democratic Party their entire politics is organized around this replacement theory. So, okay, there, there you already have, there you already have one fundamental contradiction. He do, he never ever addresses the question of how on earth you're going to get undocumented people to vote for Democrats. Uh, he just he just leaves that kind of hanging out there. And I, because he doesn't do a lot of kind of confrontational interviews, he doesn't get pressed on his on his show, and a lot of mainstream reporters won't you know even bother with trying to interview him they'll they'll wind up like uh wind up like ben smith does he doesn't get pressed on this and and i still can't make sense of it so the democratic party's theory is that they're going to allow undocumented people to come across the border so that those people can then vote 
for Democrats, yet the Democratic Party is not going to lift a finger for decades to create a pathway to citizenship. The only thing that could actually enable undocumented people to become citizens so they could vote for Democrats. That makes no sense. Followed by your point about Maya Flores, that a lot of these Hispanic voters are voting for Republicans. So there's the, the fourth or fifth thing that makes no sense about Tucker Carlson's idea. And that's before we've even gotten to the origin of replacement theory, which Tucker Carlson understands. Like the, he, and, and so Ben Smith is pressing him on, do you think that white Americans have a particular claim to the United States, what, what Tucker calls legacy Americans? Because that was the original replacement theory 100, 100 plus years ago when you had a bunch of you know, Italians and Irish and, and others coming in who were, who were and they were warning that they're going to destroy America. So he says, no, I don't. I, I legacy to him. He says legacy Americans are people of of any of any race. OK, fine. But that that's where that's where the replacement theory comes from. And I think it is fair to kind of press him on whether or not he's trying to link it to that legacy. And we uh, are like out of time on this segment. Um, so all okay. I say is that it, it is. I mean, Tucker's show that point about what constitutes a legacy American. I don't think people should be confused about that if they if they watch his show because I think it's pretty clear that he means nothing that's like racially coded, but that it's anybody who lives here now. That American taxpaying citizens, their interests should be in front of people who Democrats, you know, think should be go go through the border and then get amnesty, whatever it is. Um, but no, Ryan, I'm glad that like first of all, I'm glad that they had that. Uh, confrontation because I think it's helpful. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that we had this conversation here. Um, but we have to wrap. Uh, and we can we'll keep going on later. this one. Yeah, we, we maybe we should just do a, a segment on this at some point. Um, but our next guest believes that bitterness is liberals natural state. Ryan Grimm, who, who sort of has the sentiment in his name, <laughs> will respond. Uh, Eddie Scary joins us to expand after this. <laughs> We're joined now by DC columnist at The Federalist, Eddie Scary, who's the author of a new book, Liberal Misery, How the Hateful Left Sucks Joy Out of Everything and Everyone. Eddie, thank you so much for coming on Rising Fridays. Yeah, happy to be here. I made a joke about this in the other uh, in our in our tease of this segment about how Ryan's name itself sort of shares the sentiment of misery. <laughs> but um, Eddie, I know that Ryan and you will probably have a, a good back and forth on these questions. But one of the things that struck me about the book is it, that it gets at something deep um, and serious about how sort of lifestyle differences, changes in the way people see the world um, are, are having a serious psychological effect, I think, on uh, folks who identify with the left in this country. Could you tell us a little bit about just some of the numbers and the research you, you stumbled upon as you were producing this book? Yeah, so in the book Liberal Misery, we go th from the smallest to the largest scale of what uh, liberal misery and the, the impact it's having on this country. Um, on the small side, you have everyday people, independents, Republicans, right-wingers, conservatives, who um, I had come to find in my personal life, but I, 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 knew, I knew that it was shared by others. Um, having these interactions with, with liberals that um, could be well-meaning 
drinks with drinks with friends at a party that suddenly turn into angry outbursts um, because you disagree over politics. Um, I think we're seeing it right now with the Roe v. Wade. I'm sure there are many, many of your viewers who have run into this issue where suddenly um, I think it was even Michael Moore, filmmaker Michael Moore, who said, if you invite me to your party, I am only going to talk about Roe v. Wade and abortion the entire time. Well, that is, that, that is played out over the, the course of at least probably the last five years, maybe a little bit longer, uh, where you go into these social inter social you know gatherings, you have a, a well you, what you think is going to be a well-meaning encounter with a stranger, and suddenly it's all politics and conflict and controversy. Um, but yes, there there are many studies that back this up. Studies, surveys, data, all in my book, um, showing that liberals are more likely just to be unhappy uh, with their marriages, with their jobs, where they live. Um, they're more likely to block somebody on social media because they disagree with something they said. Um, they're more likely to say they don't want to sit, uh, literally sit at lunch with someone who voted a different way. Um, and this would be one thing if um, this was sequestered and just, you know, liberals were miserable in their, in their lives just on their own. Um, but this does have real policy impacts. Um, it, 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 it very well perhaps even changed an election in 2020. So we talk about all of that in my book, Liberal Misery. How, how so? What do you mean by changing the election? Uh, well, if you were alive at that point, um, there was um, the Black Lives Matter, the mostly peaceful Black Lives Matter rioting, rioting in the streets, violence, destruction. Every, every, uh, um, I, I think you live in D.C., but every um, storefront and everything was boarded up. Why was it boarded up in every Democrat city? That wasn't because of a possible Biden win. That was because of a possible Trump win. Um, so th th this is this is it has become this um, hostage situation where if liberals don't get their way, they are threatening political violence and we're just supposed to accept it. So that's the point I'm making in liberal misery is that the misery that they're experiencing, they are spreading and they're telling you, if we don't get our way, we're going to make your life hell, too. And so you think that some people voted for Biden just so liberals wouldn't like throw rocks and at the election or is that the connection? You're, I'm just curious what the connection to the election you're making is. Yeah. Or kill police. Um, yes, I think there were. I actually knew, knew some people in my personal life who they said if, it, if if things can just tone down a little bit, if we can bring the temperature down, which, by the way, that's something that Biden promised. Um, I, I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. I maybe maybe I don't necessarily agree with all the policies, but if we can just bring a little bit of calm back to this country, I will vote. I will vote for Democrats. Um, what have we seen? We've seen the exact opposite. So um, I hope that most voters have found out that that didn't work. In, in, in fact, after the election, liberals, liberals and Democrats only got more miserable. You have a theory on uh, from your perspective, what makes liberals miserable? And have you looked throughout history? Like if you go back 200 years are are people who were sort of the types of people who would be liberals today were they miserable then uh just the jacobins you know, or the or ab abolitionists i would i would i would suspect that you know some of the most miserable like pers personal people in the like 1830s and 40s were probably abolitionists because they're just you know consumed with the the horror uh that 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 is around them and that they're living through and and i think that that kind of you know that's an extreme version of it, but I feel like that might explain some some of why you you find less satisfaction among among liberals because they they look around the world and they see the horror of it. 
Eddie, can I jump in? They want it to be better. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. And that's what I think is one of the really interesting things. So like the abolition movement was was heavily Christian. And the American right right now is heavily Christian. And there are correlations between not not just Christianity, but religion in general, faith. Um, Whether you live in a community that has social capital, meaning you have your bowling league is still open, your church is still packed, you have a robust PTA, all of these different things. Um, And and so there there are kind of lifestyle differences that as people have documented, like in coming apart, where if you're you're isolating in different areas of the country where there's different levels of social capital or you're, you're getting married later, you're having fewer children than you say you want, which we know is true of American women, it seems like some of these lifestyle differences uh, are contributing to this. It's less political than it is maybe downstream of, of lifestyle and cultural differences. Right. So the first chapter of liberal misery is all packed with all this data and the studies and the surveys um, that demonstrate this. But yes, as you were saying, lifestyle differences, religiosity uh, was one thing that the, 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 I think the most important study I looked at was based on four other studies um, that talked with people about how, how they feel about their own, um, their, their own agency, their independence. Do, they, do you feel like you're in control of your life? Are you, are you more religious? All of those things, the more likely you were to say, I, I'm, I'm in control of my destiny, I do have greater uh, a sense of faith and you know, a religious aspect to my life, all of those were more correlated with happiness. The more of that you attested to, to having what you were likely, more likely to be happy and to um, demonstrate some more satisfaction in, in every single area of your life. When I say every area, every area, that, that, that was something that kind of surprised me. Um, as far as going back, we didn't, I didn't go back too far in, in history to look at all this. What I did think, I thought, I thought you know, maybe the, the 2016 election was, was a turning point for this because you know, you're, you're more happier when your home team wins, right? Um, but I, I went back to the Obama years and thought, let me look at these same exact questions because some of them Gallup and Pew, they ask the same question every year, every four years, whatnot. And I, I saw that even during the Obama years, Democratic voters were still more likely to say that they were unhappy with any any given area of their life. And they were also more likely to say they want to have nothing to do with the other side. And just to give you one example um, for the Trump years, it was if you were a Trump voter and you were a student, I believe that I believe it was Duke. Um, you at, they asked students, they said, if you were a Trump voter, um, are you OK sitting with um, a rooming with or study buddy with uh, a Clinton voter? Uh, like it was like 60, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of, of Trump voters said, yeah, I have no problem whatsoever. Clinton voters around thir- only around 30 percent would say they wanted to have anything to do with the Trump voter, whether it was sitting with them at lunch, rooming with them, study buddy with them. Um, so it was it was just really astonishing to see that play out even even during the Obama years, as I was just saying. It's my own theory on this, I'm curious for for your take, is that because liberals feel like so liberals don't don't necessarily have a systemic analysis of oppression or of, of what's what's wrong with the country. They feel like a lot of it comes down to kind of personal responsibility that they that they feel like they have to be, you know, behaving in a particular way, and and that is part that is central to their politics. Whereas left leftists often have a much more kind of systemic analysis, and in some ways, a systemic analysis lets lets you off the hook psychically psychologically you, you feel less guilty then for participating in these systems because your, your participation you know is is having a very marginal effect one one way or the other whereas a kind of core liberal idea is that you've got to you know you've, you've got to have the sign out front you've, you've got to have uh, you know, the right kind of car you've got to be recycling uh, you know you have to be you know anti-racist in your 
in your workforce or what you know you you, you have it's up to you to act in this particular way and i think relative uh and i think that that can that probably causes a lot of uh you know kind of psychic turmoil inside inside people uh it, what i mean what's do you or uh is it the other way around that the that feeling a kind of way creates a particular politics or is the having the politics then create a, a type of feeling in people. Hmm. Um, well, I hope this answers your question. Um, I will say that it 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 struck me that there there was one study that that kind of attempted to explain why why liberals are more likely to say why Democratic voters are more likely to say that they're unhappy in, in, in any given on any given subject. Um, and the the theory with this particular study was. Well, they're just so preoccupied with with um, inequality and the idea that there's so much inequality in the country um, that that just weighs on their mind. Well, that doesn't explain why they would more be more likely to say that they're unhappy with their marriages and their personal relationships um, that I, I, I can't really square those things. Uh, what I will say is that it, I think a, a, to your point um, is that politics has be, is is and has become for some time now. Um, an all-consuming factor uh, with the left, with Democrats, with liberal voters. Um, this is something that that it, it's how they make decisions with based on who they're going to be friends with, who they want to date, who they even want to give a shot at having drinks with. That's <laughs> that's how liberals and Democrats make their decisions now. Is what are, what are this person's politics? Um, and one study we talk about in liberal misery was how um, just getting to the, the the point of it being all-consuming was that regardless of your income level, you could be a janitor, you could be a CEO of a company, you are more likely if you are a Democratic voter to give money to your cause or to your candidate. That is without, you know, again, with you could be the low, you could make pennies literally for, for a living. Um, but if you are a Democratic voter, you are just more concerned, you care far more about your issue than independents and people on the right. Hmm. I like both of your theories. Uh, super interesting conversation. The book is Liberal Misery. It's out now. Eddie Scary of The Federalist. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. We'll have more Rising after this. The Ukrainian government, flush with American money, is now shoveling millions of it back to the Washington area in the form of lobbying fees. Senior foreign policy writer at Vox, Jonathan Geyer, is here to discuss his latest piece at Vox, looks at the way that Ukraine has been influencing uh, Washington's uh, foreign policy making apparatus. Jonathan, welcome to Rising. Hi. And so, so what, what did you find? You, you, dug through, uh, you dug through these records pretty relentlessly. Uh, what did you unearth? So I would say, according to experts on foreign lobbying, what Ukraine is doing right now is unprecedented in Washington. Obviously, foreign lobbying is legal. Ukraine is under siege. Putin is vile. So, of course, they're pushing hard for as many weapons as they possibly can to win this war. But there isn't as much transparency as maybe you and I as reporters would like to see. I've been getting invited to dinners, breakfasts, gatherings. Some of them are by registered foreign lobbyists and some aren't. So I just started asking some questions. And what I've discovered is that there's only 14 Department of Justice officials overseeing all of foreign lobbying, about 2,000 foreign lobbyists here in Washington and the U.S. who are registered. And for Ukraine, there's about 24, maybe now 25 after this story, as a PR firm says they're going to register as a result. But 
24 registered lobbyists for Ukraine, up from 11 last year. And, and there's a bit of a lag to this registration. So uh, in terms of how many contacts these lobbyists have made with journalists like ourselves, think tankers, other uh, parts of their influence campaign. But just in the lead up to the war, there were 10,000 such contacts of foreign lobbyists trying to influence how the U.S. thinks about the Ukraine war. And as I say, you know, maybe that's okay. It's totally legal. The FARA, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, doesn't limit speech. But I think we all want a lot of transparency over the information, the articles, and and all of the, the journalism we're consuming. And if people are foreign lobbyists, we ought to know that. Transparency at the very least. And your point about the dinner invitations is so interesting because they're intentionally massaging journalists and messaging. And yet there's so little, I think, good reporting on the aggressive lobbying campaign, despite the fact that journalists are, in many cases, the ones being lobbied and contacted by these folks. And, and Jonathan, you there's so much information in this piece. People should absolutely go to Vox and read it. But one of the most interesting things that stuck, stuck out to me is like Mercury, for example. Mercury Mercury Public Affairs, which is what Paul Manafort was a contractor through Mercury for the European Center for Modern Ukraine, which was a, basically a front for uh, you know Yanukovych's government. And now Ukraine is now Mercury has taken up work that they think is going to be better for them in this situation. And in the meantime, fair enforcement is ratcheting up from the DOJ allegedly, even though they are sort of short staffed. So can you tell? us how this Ukraine lobbying is happening in the broader context of the, the lobbying that's been happening for Russia and for Ukraine in Washington, D.C. over the last like 10 years, 15 years. So, Emily, there's this pretty funny dynamic, I think, if, if you think this is funny, which is switching sides, essentially. Yeah. Uh, those who are lobbying on behalf of Russia, you know, these Russian firms, banks, companies get sanctioned in February. Uh, as the war begins, as Putin's invasion begins. And where do these lobbyists go? They sever their ties with Russian institutions and they start lobbying for Ukrainian institutions, sometimes on a pro bono basis. And, and I find this fascinating because even if you're lobbying on a pro bono basis on behalf of a foreign country, you still have to register. That's part of this law that was originally started in 1938 to counter Nazi and Soviet influence. Uh, the law probably needs an update. I don't think it's totally suited for tweets and Facebook posts uh, mm -hmm. or the the barrage of think tank publications and other forms of media that we currently have in Washington. So there's this huge gray zone that I think needs a lot more interrogation because you have just tons of Ukrainian delegations coming into Washington. I've been totally impressed. I've never seen anything so disciplined. They're asking for very specific weapons. They're asking for drones. They're asking mm. for F-16s. You have civil society, you have parliamentarians. And then I had the pleasure of dining with two fighter jet pilots from Ukraine. And let me just say, a lot of this is legal. A lot of this is above board. And it's probably the right thing to do from a Ukrainian standpoint to push back against Putin. But is it the right thing for an American interest? And whose interests are being represented when uh, Ukrainians are lobbying Congress, are lobbying the State Department, Defense Department? Well, yeah, can you talk? Oh, 
Well, just to, just a, and a fine point on that is Mercury is a good example because they were working with the Podesta group at the time to for on, on Yanukovych's behalf, and he ended up fleeing to Russia. And you can have a conversation about whether that pro-NATO stance was it, how Putin sort of influenced what Yanukovych thought, but it is that is particularly an instructive case study. I mean, it is just such an interesting world of lobbying. And I got a lot of response from readers who don't have great insight into the nuts and bolts of how Washington works. So really, it's just looking at these files and, and attending these meetings and gatherings and trying to get a sense of, you know, what's really happening. You know, whether you're lobbying for the good guys or the bad guys, uh, you got to register. Hmm. And can, can you talk a little bit more about the, the interplay between sanctions and foreign lobbying? And American interest, because I think that's the thing that gets o overlooked a lot as l let's say that you want to have a political system that's going to allow unlimited amounts of foreign influence to kind of drive American policy one direction or another. That's one thing. But to then have a policy that says actually only these particular actors are able to influence American policy and taking it out of Russia, Ukraine, you could say, the you know Saudi Arabia and the UAE are always you know at loggerheads with Iran. Saudi Arabia and the UAE are legally allowed to just you know rain money down on Washington. Iran, because of sanctions, cannot. And and I would assume that you're then going to get a distorted uh, policy outcome. Do you do you see that play out? Well, one expert told me that this is more uh, lobbying contacts. What Ukraine is doing in D.C. than anything he's ever seen even Saudi Arabia, which is uber wealthy on this front. But if you just look at the numbers, we have this staggering amount of aid going to Ukraine, about 40 billion total. I'd say it's by my count about 10 billion is for security assistance. And, you know, some senators have called for a lot of oversight on the US side and the Ukrainian side. But those are the kind of questions that you're not hearing from lobbyists. Uh, but you want more oversight and, and watchdogs over this just staggering amount of military aid just to get a sense of it is in the U.S. interests, uh, if it is bringing the U.S. closer to being a party to this war. Now, I think in terms of foreign agent registration, there's been a really interesting scandal at the Brookings Institution, <laughs> probably the most venerable think tank in Washington, where the president recently stepped down, General John Allen, because he's accused reportedly of being an unregistered lobbyist for Qatar during the Trump administration, reaching out to Trump officials on behalf of a foreign government. And it's just kind of unbelievable that such an imminent institution would have this kind of accusation against its leader. But this is what I'm trying to point out is it's somewhat normalized foreign interests in Washington. And I don't know if I can change that with this particular story, but I just want to draw attention to how uh, run-of-the-mill foreign lobbying, foreign interests are, and and that not everybody's registered. That is such a good point. And Jonathan, before we let you run, did you you mentioned you, you alluded earlier to the fact that maybe some folks are registering after your your story came out? Have you caught wind of that? Well, the firm that hosted this dinner with uh, jet fighter pilots did assure me that they were going to register at the advice of their counsel. And uh, I think that's great. If, if you're gonna be doing foreign lobbying, uh, I, I hope you would follow the law. It's a really weird law in terms of the enforcement kind of comes from the lobbyists, not necessarily from the Department of Justice. It's, it's somewhat peculiar. Uh, and, and it's gotten a ton more attention since the Trump years, when, as you mentioned, there were just a ton of people from Trump's inner circle 
uh, playing fast and loose here. So uh, here's the transparency. That's right. Here's the transparency. Jonathan, thank you so much for your insights. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We'll have more rising after this. So President Biden is actually headed to Israel, to the West Bank in the days ahead. And we're still sort of trying to understand what happened in the assassination of Shireen Abu Akla. And you know what, Tom Rogan, he's a foreign policy writer at the Washington Examiner. He joins us now to talk about this. Tom, first of all, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. And secondly, Tom and I actually were talking about this um, just we, we were at a party actually earlier this week celebrating the 4th of July. And, and I was talking about the difficulty of having this conversation and sort of understanding it from the perspective of somebody on the right, from the perspective of somebody generally pro-Israel. And, and Tom, your views are always really nuanced. You took a dive into understanding as you know, we have analyses from the Associated Press, from CNN, from Bellingcat um, that all seem to approach the same conclusion conclusion that this came from the IDF. Um, and, you know, there's been controversy over the bullet itself. We've covered it on, on this show. Um, I tend to agree with what we've seen come out of the CNN and, and AP analyses. When you dug into it, what, what conclusion did you come to as you wrote this piece? Well, I think the first thing is that, you know, the, the evidence does tend to suggest and pretty strongly that uh, the bullet was fired by an Israeli soldier. Um, and because of the uh, grouping of the journalists um, who all in, at least in the area where um, uh, Abu Akla was standing, uh, were all wearing um, blue media jackets. You know, there, there's a sort of basic, you know, prima facie concern that, you know, OK, at a minimum, we should want to know how this happened um, and, and so, you know, that it was worthy of further um, investigation. I suppose that's my my primary point. Um, you know, that there is also the fact that the bullet um, did enter um, uh, Abu Akla's head um, just behind the ear. And, you know, the question then, was that deliberate? You know, I suspect it probably was not in terms of um, that they were specifically, whoever fired the shot was targeting her. Um, but it, it, at a minimum, it seems to be a, a breach of Israeli rules of engagement, which tend to be pretty strict, partly to avoid situations ex expressly like this one, where a media individual is killed and the negative uh, ramifications of that um, reverberate in terms of Israel's uh, position on the international stage. And what do you what do you make of the willingness of the American media uh, across the board and not just the willingness, but the kind of uh, ag aggressive resources that were deployed into, you know, exploring how how she was how she was killed, uh, particularly at, at CNN. If you recall, there were a lot of concerns raised when Tom Nides was named what ambassador to Israel because he's married to the head of CNN's uh, news gathering operation. And so to have CNN, you know, come out with this ex exhaustive and authoritative report, you know, po pointing the finger at the IDF in this shooting uh, seemed rather extraordinary. What, what did that say about how the, how the politics of this are unfolding in the face of all of these early is Israeli denials about what had happened? 
Yeah, I think there was a, uh, you know, it, frankly, it's just, it, it's, it's been really good journalism. Uh, the New York Times as well, uh, the Washington Post. You know, I think my, my piece was probably one of the more basic ones, but one of the fewer ones perhaps in conservative media. Um, and, and, you know, I think it does reflect that, that as you say, Ryan, in the, in the early days, uh, the Israeli government um, was... Um, you know, vague, distant about uh, what had happened. In fact, Naftali Bennett, the now former Israeli prime minister, suggested uh, that it was a Palestinian uh, weapon that, that fired the, the lethal shot. And and so, you know, I think, again, there was a skepticism uh, on the part of media, uh, but also, uh, you know, a desire with an American journalist, right, obviously a dual Palestinian-American citizen being killed to, to try and find out what happened in a way that, that you know, if any of us, you know, were in the West Bank and, and shot in similar circumstances, I, I would imagine we would want uh, media colleagues uh, to, to, to look into it. So I, th I think it's a good thing. Well, and, and that's an important element of this because they were clearly identified as press. It's another very difficult thing to get around that it, we're to believe that the Israeli forces who fired the shot um, or seem to have fired the shot pretty clearly couldn't see that there were press jackets, press helmets, which seems hard to believe, but it gets into this question of motive, which you explored in your piece, which again, from the perspective of somebody who's generally pro-Israel is really hard for me to piece together. Um, what is the motivation in this case, why do something that would cause this level of outrage of very beloved Palestinian American Christian journalist, especially in uh, Palestine. So Tom, this gets to how President Biden will talk about this if he talks about it, if he addresses it, which I assume he will have to answer questions from the press when he when he's in Israel um, in the days ahead. What is your take on the motive and, and what do you think that means for how American lawmakers should approach these questions? Well, we, we do know that an Israeli uh, commando unit uh, had come under fire in, during a raid earlier that morning. Uh, and it seems to be that the, the, the shots were fired from an Israeli cordon position, which is to say, you know, blocking, uh, you know, egress, you know, movement uh, by potential terrorists out of the area. The one thing that, that I think would give the Israelis, um, you know, a sense of justification, at least on the part of the ground unit that fired the shots, was that you can see in some of the video uh, fighting age men uh, not in press gear around the journalists. The challenge, I think, is and now so if there had been spotters to say, OK, there are fighting age men here now they're approaching your position. That's one thing. The challenge is that the specific group that Abbe Akla was in uh, did tend to be, at least from the imagery I saw, uh, coalesced around all in blue media persons. Uh, going down a quite sort of tightly a, a, a defined uh, corridor, as it would, so you did, so that the Israeli soldiers from the firing point would see that group. So so there are questions to be asked. I mean, it, it, it is again, it is hard to see at a minimum how this didn't breach the rules of engagement. But but, you know, potentially, um, you know, why would again, why were those shots fired? Mm -hmm. and, and Tom, did you get any reaction from from the is, Israeli government and also on the shots? themselves uh is it your we're talking about 200 meters or uh, was it, do you what do we know whether or not there was a, a scope used or not if you know if there's a scope you very clearly could see you know press was very large font but you could you could probably see it without a scope but with a scope you certainly can and then right. i've also seen it reported that 
several of the bullets also hit the tree right nearby, mm -hmm. which suggests, you know, which suggests very concentrated, targeted fire rather than just just a random spraying of bullets that accidentally, you know, wound up hitting uh, Shireen in the face because she was wearing a helmet and she was wearing, uh, you know, ar armor. So there were there there was really only you know you it, it took a very precise shot to kill her. Yeah, you can see that in the photos and videos. There's a there's a tight yeah. shot pattern. Yeah. Right, right. I, you know, I, the limited number of shots that you think about it, it, it is indicative that it wasn't a heavy machine, where a light machine gun, etc., just pumping rounds down the um, down the alleyway. Uh, I mean, that point to the scope is is critical. I mean, I think we that has that has been raised. I've seen that. We don't know. I think for sure. But again, we should want to know, right? That that is something we frankly need to know because it does give a lot more indication as to. Um, you know, motive and culpability. Um, you know, I did not have uh, any reaction that I saw from the Israeli government, um, but I do think it, it is, um, you know, interesting that that perhaps we haven't seen as much coverage of this on the right, uh, which I think is is you know is is something that, that frankly um, is a little concerning to me because again, this is an American journalist who was killed. Being pro-Israeli does not mean, you know, that you, you know, just just don't cover a story that might right. be negative uh, for Israel. And mm -hmm. and I, I, that isn't to me. That's not right. If if it was a British soldier who'd done this, I would have said, oh, what the, you know, let's figure out what that British soldier was doing. <laughs> and I'm a dual yeah. American as well. So I'm, anyway, all right. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say, you're a little both. Well, Tom Rogan, foreign policy writer at the Washington Examiner. I know you were up late last night covering all the breaking international news. We appreciate your time this morning. No problem. Thank you. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Under pressure, Boris Johnson is finally resigning. Uh, Tom Rogan is going to be back with us, a foreign affairs reporter from the Washington Correspondent. Tom. We, we wanted to start out because we're going to talk about the transition next. Uh, a, a conservative uh, British politician appeared on uh, British TV uh, yesterday to talk about what that transition would look like. And it produced what I think is a, an activism Hall of Fame moment <laughs> as people, people nearby played this music behind him. Let's, let's roll this clip. Couple of things. Firstly, we need to make sure that we keep the basic functions of government going. Uh, that's really important. There are, for example, uh, no ministers in DfE at the moment. That needs to be sorted out. Uh, secondly, I think we need to try and select a new leader as quickly as we reasonably can. I and mean, obviously, uh, we need to make sure we make, make the correct choice, uh, but we should do it in a reasonably quick time. In terms of Boris staying on, the convention is that the outgoing Prime Minister um, does carry on. Uh, that's what happened when uh, Theresa May left office, is what happened when David Cameron left office. And, you know, given that... Ryan so could not get enough of yeah. that. It's so, so good. It's so good. <laughs> if anybody was able to follow yeah. what he was trying to say, he's talking about the transition to the next uh, Prime Minister. Uh, so which, which clown will come out of the clown car next? Uh, so what, what is going to, what is going to happen next? And also you know, what, what happened? Uh, Boris Johnson didn't change. Why all of a sudden is he so, uh, deeply unpopular? So, so I think, um, what happened is essentially the, the conservative parliamentary party, right? The members of parliament, um, in Boris Johnson's party lost confidence in him that the backdrop to this had been 
repeated parties that had been held at Downing Street, equivalent essentially of the White House during the COVID lockdowns uh, with a lot of alcohol and partying. Boris Johnson denied there were parties. Then photos came out showing he'd been at repeated ones. That sort of played to a loss of trust and to this idea in, in British society of the class system, right? That the, the people like Boris Johnson, who went to uh, private boarding schools, Eton, where he went, um, and Oxford, there's a rule, different uh, system of rules there for those people than, than everyone else. Um, you know, Boris Johnson survived that. Uh, the most recent scandal, though, came when uh, a minister uh, had, that Boris Johnson had appointed to the role of deputy chief whip um, in the parliament, that it turned out that he, jo Johnson had been aware that when that minister was formally at the foreign office, he'd been accused of misconduct. Uh, and Boris Johnson essentially then denied that he had been briefed on that. Uh, and it came out that he had. So it was just it was one thing after the other of a loss of confidence, plummeting uh, poll ratings. And I think this broader change in opinion that that Boris Johnson from being the kind of charismatic, foppish, eccentric guy who could at least get Brexit done became a liability and a clown, uh, essentially. Uh, and and. So what's happening now? Um, and, and I think that plays to all this imagery and the, the Benny Hill music and, you know, the, the media coverage and British people kind of finding it all quite funny that Boris Johnson refused to leave. Uh, and, you know, it just became a sort of surreal Monty Python sketch. Um, so what's going to happen now? There will be a leadership contest. Um, there will be a new leader of the Conservative Party because of the British parliamentary system that leader will immediately become prime minister de facto without the need for an election. Um, that doesn't need to happen until January 2025. Um, and the question becomes, who will be the leader? I think, interestingly, for Americans, the top three candidates uh, to take over that, two of them, uh, Ben Wallace, the defense secretary, and Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, uh, are, are pretty ardently pro-American. Liz Truss has a very good relationship with Secretary of State uh, Blinken. Um, so, frankly, there should be, and, and both of them actually are, especially Ben Wallace, who I think is the favourite, are pretty, seen as pretty sort of stable hands. Ben Wallace is kind of seen, he's an ex-army uh, officer, slightly boring, you know, the, the antithesis in many ways of Boris Johnson. But I think that probably helps him a lot within the party and certainly among the public. So, um, you know, I, I think in a sense, it's, it's, it's a positive that a line has been drawn un, under this now. Um, although Boris Johnson seems determined to, to, to stay on in, until September when a new leader takes over. And the question is, can he do that? Because there's a lot of people who want him out now. Yeah, it seems unlikely that he can do that at this point. Um, but maybe if they keep playing the Benny Hill music over and over again, people will forget. It sort of has a psychological uh, effect. But, Tom, I'm also curious what you think this means for European nationalism, for British nationalism. Um, there was a take in Axios this morning already um, that said this basically means you can no longer campaign on, on Brexit and expect there to be a political benefit from it. Uh, I'm curious for your take on that. Um, obviously, this, this doesn't affect whether Brexit... Is, still has to go through, whether whether uh, the UK will rejoin the EU. Um, but does this put a, a damper on both 
British, British nationalism, European nationalism, does it affect it much, or is this really isolated to Boris Johnson himself? Even though Boris Johnson really was sort of this walking manifestation of the ideology, somebody who Donald Trump, I think, said was Trump, um, was, was like him. He, I think that's one of, uh, that's paraphrasing a quote from, from John, Donald Trump. But what effect do you think this has on, on that sort of movement in general? Well, I, I think, you know, sometimes the, the assessment, I mean, French nationalism, you know, is, is pretty different, uh, right, in Italian nationalism than uh, British nationalism, even German nationalism. The continental nationalism tends to be, uh, I think, you know, quite frankly, quite a lot darker than some of the British elements of nationalism, which really around Brexit tended to be, uh, you know, sovereignty of parliament and, of course, uh, control of borders, immigration. Um, those things have been established. So then that British nationalism come, goes back to sort of quieter kind of patriotism. Uh, the far right, as you would perceive it in, say, the AFD in, in Germany or uh, the National Front in France, obviously has a new name now, um, you know, that far right element has always been pretty marginal in Britain. Uh, so I don't think this tends to be quite, you know, that much of a seismic shift. I mean, Brexit is done. I think the commentators who say this undermines, you know, maybe Brexit won't be undone. I, I, I don't know what they're talking about because I don't see how that could happen. But, um, you know, it, it, it's certainly true, I think, though, in the European continent, uh, the, these, these individual nationalist movements and the parties are growing in power. And it is a concern to the to the European super project, as it were, which is the idea of eventually creating United States of Europe. Um but but in terms of the more uh, xenophobic nationalism, you know, again, I, I think, at least in Britain, um, that's always been relatively marginalized, at least as a political force. Hmm. How, how do people feel about Brexit now in Britain? If 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 the, yeah, what are the polls saying? Like, in other words, like if they could go back and do it again, would are they glad that they did it? Is there regret? Uh, did it end up did, did the way that he negotiated it end up hurting him? Where, where, where does Brexit stand today, the legacy of Brexit? Yeah, you know, I think, I think it's relatively a sort of status quo. I think quite, quite a, you know, it sounds sort of silly in a way, but because it dragged on for so long, the process, I think a lot of Britons were quite happy that it was just resolved. Um, and because there hasn't been a sort of cataclysmic economic downturn that, that was predicted by many of the um, pro-state uh, voices, you know, that has somewhat insulated those who were in favour of it. I think certainly, though, in the coming years, it'll be critically important that, you know, as we get out of the COVID environment, uh, the post-COVID environment, Britain will have to show that it, or the, the, the pro-Brexit voices, the Conservative Party, most of all, will have to show uh, that they can negotiate trade deals with the United States, India, uh, to offset uh, that, that uh, European Union economic powerhouse, as it were. And and so if they're unable to do that, and if these trade frictions, which we've seen, for example, in, in Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland border, um, aren't solved, then there could be a uh, some, some pushback um, uh, over Brexit. But but probably probably too early to say at this moment. So Tom Rogan, he's a foreign policy writer at the Washington Examiner. You should follow him on Twitter at Tom R. Tweets. Thanks so much for joining us for two segments, not one, but two. Tom, it's a busy day and we appreciate your Thank insight. You. Great. Thank you very much to both of you. Anytime. We'll be back with more Rising right after this.
unbelievable story out of New York this week. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it at this point because the video has been so viral. Jose Alba is a clerk at a bodega in New York City. It's called the Blue Moon Convenience Store. He was attacked by somebody who started a fight with Alba because his girlfriend's, uh, I think it was an EBT card, didn't work when she was trying to buy a bag of chips. Cards declined. The boyfriend comes in, starts attacking Alba. As you can see on the viral video, you saw the, the picture of it in that headline. Alba stabbed the man who attacked him to death. He was sent to Rikers Island on an exceedingly high bail. I think it was like a quarter of a million dollars. It was then dropped to $50,000, and he's, he's now out. Um, but it's fairly outrageous the way I think the prosecutor reacted to this. There is video. Um, it, he had a complete right to defend himself in this case. Uh, GoFundMe took the page down because of the violence in it. There is a give, send, go. Ryan, what is your take on this whole horrible situation? I mean, it, it is awful no matter how you look at it. Um, a man died. A man had to take a life in defense of himself. Um, went to, to Rikers Island, is now being charged. What do you make of it? There are a lot of different layers to it. I mean, from a from a bail reform perspective, it, it puts uh, you know a lot of conservatives in, an, in, an, a, in a difficult position because they've they've been railing against bail reform over the last several years. I, I happen to think that this. I don't think that this uh, store owner is a further danger to society. I don't think he's the kind of person. That needs some, uh, you know, prohibitive uh, bail to keep him locked up. Uh, I think that the, the, the prosecutor said that he had a, a pre-planned trip to the Dominican Republic, and so therefore he was a, a flight risk. I, I don't think that's fair. I think people travel. Uh, I, you know, I, so I think that th uh, that people are right to criticize the, the the bail level, and he should, you know, he should be able to get out, and, and I suspect he will uh, face trial. I think. The whole the whole thing is tragic, and obviously everybody supports a a right to defend yourself. the the, the question of uh, a lethal um, a lethal response uh, in an escalation. You know, he obviously you know he was the one who was attacked. He's and as he's trying to get out, you can see uh, the the victim then kind of uh, grab him, mm -hmm. and that's when he starts stabbing him. Uh, he doesn't necessarily know whether or not the the person is armed, and so you can understand his his uh, his fear. And if if he was a police officer, you know this would be absolutely an open and open and shut case. Um, I, but I I just I don't I also don't want to get into a place where everybody who gets into a fight or gets confronted, you know, aut automatically has the legal right to then kill the other person. I think that that takes us to to a dangerous place, though I know uh, probably most people disagree with me on that. You know, I think there's a question of whether it's intentional in a moment where you're trying to protect your life. And that's a, an important element. And, and uh, Alba's son has spoken to that. He said he's this, he was terrified. He's an elderly man. He's 61 years old being attacked by a much younger, bigger, stronger man. So you can understand how in the moment it would completely trigger survival uh, reflex. And I mean, as it should, and as he should have the right to do. But there, yeah, I agree that bail, on a bail reform level, it puts conservatives in an interesting place. 
ways. And frankly, it's not an issue that conservatives pay a ton of attention to. And I think when things like this happen, you can get you know some common ground uh, out of tragedy, unfortunately, because it, it brings attention to it. Um, and, and on the other hand, though, I do think with the rates of violent crime increasing in certain areas of this country, many major city, cities have seen increases in violent crime. That's not true across the board. Um, and it's not true that all crime has increased everywhere. There is nuance to this, but in certain major cities, they are seeing spikes in things like armed robbery. It is important for people like Alba to know that they can defend themselves. And on the flip side, it's important for people who do attack those like Alba, who want to start fights with people like Alba, to know that there's a deterrent um, in place, that this is, you know, people are not going to be charged with murder when you have on video camera um, scenes of, of violence being perpetrated against them. So I, I also do understand, Ryan, why this seems to have resonated with a lot of people around the country. Viral give, send, go, viral video, lots of coverage of it. Um, because I think people are genuinely worried about violent crime in their communities and and want to know that they'd be comfortable, I guess, acting. Yeah, and it's it's really hard to put yourself in somebody's shoes because you, you don't know, you know, what they're feeling in that particular moment. Uh, it, it's a, it's really tough. It, it, there there is a there is a there's a, a risk that you know if if you if you open up self defense laws too dramatically that you're going to have people take advantage of it. That yes. you're yeah. you're going you're going to have people. Uh, who who start fights, uh, and then uh, when the fight starts, then they're going then they're going to uh, you know use deadly force against against the person and say, look, I was just I was defending myself. Now that is not that's not what that's not what happened here. Uh, so, that, but then you go back to the question: Well, what if what if that is what happened here? What, you know, what if he had say pushed somebody first, uh, and and then and then does that then? You know, close off the self-defense, or do, or does he still have the self-defense? Right. I think these are thornier questions than we'd like to acknowledge, and I guess that's why juries are, you know, uh, you know, oftentimes appropriate to to work these out. You put the put the facts before them, and and let let a jury of your peers kind of, you know, sort sort it out. I think Alba is really lucky in this case that there was surveillance footage um, because the, that's what mounted the sort of public backlash, which got his charge reduced and got his bail reduced. And actually, as part of his release agreement, Alba is also barred from leaving New York City and he had to surrender his passport. Simon's girlfriend, the man that attacked Alba and was stabbed, allegedly also pulled a knife from her purse and stabbed Alba three times in the shoulder and hand. According to his attorney, she has not been charged with the DA's office saying mm -hmm. only, quote, we are continuing to review the evidence and the investigation is ongoing. So continuing to the, review the evidence, a perfectly fair statement. Um, but again, there's been this backlash against progressive prosecutors, um, progressive activists basically in DA's offices, whether it's Chester Boudin in San Francisco, wherever it is, or here, Alvin Bragg in New York City. Um, that's going to be, I, I think that's going to be a real problem for Democrats because to your point, Ryan, there's absolutely a flip side to this coin. You don't want laws that are so open-ended that people take advantage of them. Um, on the other hand, though, you have to have, if, if rates of violent crime are, are increasing, People need deterrence. They need to know that they will be, um, you know, people will defend themselves and they will be legally within their rights to do that. So to your point, this is this is a thorny issue, but I don't think this particular example, I wonder how you think this plays into that yeah. conversation about broad, more broadly progressive prosecutors. 
Yeah, and I actually had missed that his that his girlfriend had a knife and had and had stabbed him, and I think that that knowing that, I think that that makes the situation a lot clearer because now, you know, he's he's seeing a, a deadly weapon also being deployed in a violent way uh, against him, which at, can could which could have easily you know led to him being killed. Uh, so I think that does kind of pull it out of some of that gray area into a into a clearer self defense uh, picture. Uh, you know, I don't on the on the bigger question. I I think that you know crime is is always going to you know cause problems for the kind of incumbent political party. Uh, there was a, a a huge amount of media attention on the fact that Chase Boudin uh, you know lost lost that recall. But up and down California at at that same time, uh, progressive prosecutors you know, were either reelected or or ousted, kind of law and order prosecutors. Uh, elsewhere around the country and in places you wouldn't have expected. You saw, I think, in De, uh, Des Moines, for instance, at, at, right around that, that same night, elected a progressive you know, uh, criminal justice reform prosecutor. So I think there is actually still a lot of appetite for criminal justice reform. The, the, you know, if, if the approach that we've been taking since the 1980s of, of mass incarceration was, was what was going to get us out of this uh, you know, out of this situation was was the answer. Uh, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. And I think some people, you know, enough people are recognizing that that you're still going to have a live de- debate despite a, an uptick in, in a lot of places in violent crime. Yeah, and the specifics on that are, um, this is from the New York Post, a total of 189 murders have been tallied in New York City as of Sunday, the latest date of available data, this is for June. That's down more than 13%, actually, from 218 on the same date a year ago, but rapes, robberies, and felony assaults are all up 15.4%, 39.7%, and 19.6%, respectively. You can see this also repeated in Washington, D.C. and L.A. These are these are pretty substantive uh upticks. And Ryan, I think you just made such an interesting point about the proliferation of progressive prosecutors, even in places like Des Moines. To me, what that speaks to is the fact that in this back and forth, people are deeply frustrated with the way both political parties are handling crime, whether it's bail, um, whether it's the way we treat nonviolent drug offenders, whatever it is, there's there's massive discontent with that and then there's also discontent with these policies that have maybe decreased deterrence um, at the same time, or even just policies that have destroyed the the sort of social capital in areas that make violence more common. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think the, the reaction to the progressive prosecutors and the progressive po- prosecutors themselves, the combination of both of those two things speaks to a really deep-seated uh, disenchantment with the political establishment. Yeah, and I, I think if we continue to see an unraveling of the social fabric, that you probably can't, you know, hold hold up a progressive prosecutor movement much longer because, the, because of the way that you know basically that crime crime is covered and the way that people think about crime. You know, a progressive prosecutor isn't going to get credit for a a crime that didn't that that didn't happen, a recidivism that didn't. You know, you know that, that's just how human nature is. You're not you're not getting credit for things that don't happen, and. When you when you do see crimes, oftentimes it's recidivism, and so you know the media will be able to point to, uh, look, this this person was previously charged with X, and yet and here they are, uh, and the implication is, 
you know, that if a prosecutor had just locked him up and thrown away the key, then this particular person would not have assaulted, raped, or killed, you know, this particular victim. And once, and once you put particular names and faces on it, that, that changes the, the, pol- the politics of it. When, you know, you, you, you know, when, you know, e- even, even if you can throw statistics and studies at people showing that this approach will actually reduce crime overall, say, well, this particular person was still killed by somebody who wasn't charged with enough. And so, therefore, we need to throw more books at more people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and again, like the big picture here is that all of these uh, upticks are happening in the context of COVID lockdowns. So speaking of the political mm-hmm. establishment, um, COVID lockdowns led to job losses, led to all kinds of instability uh, culturally and politically. And these upticks are happening in major cities in the context of the lockdowns and the response to COVID. And I, yeah. I think that's absolutely worth remembering. Um, Ryan, any final thoughts on that? No, you're right. It's, it's a massive social breakdown, and mm-hmm. people are people are furious and lashing out at each other, yeah. and, and and that's across the board. You know, whether you have a progressive prosecutor or not. And, and you know, I think the good news on that, uh, to the extent that there's a silver silver lining, is that social breakdown is something that can be acknowledged and uh, hopefully dealt with, even if it's piecemeal. Um, by people on a bipartisan basis. I don't know if that'll happen, Um, although I do think you see more momentum for it as demands for solutions uh, with this two-sided, the the two sides of this coin, uh, progressive prosecutors backlash to progressive prosecutors. So people just want solutions. They don't care if it's Democrat or Republican. Um, So on that note, thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Rising Fridays. Ryan, you're really safe up there in Vermont this weekend. Yeah, social yeah, so, social capital still strong in in Vermont. People are people are not as furious at each other up here as they are in the rest of the country. And apparently, you have good beer. Although the beer I had I in do. Vermont recently was wasn't impressive to me, but I don't like IPAs, and, and you do. <laughs> well, then, yeah, this is not the place for you then. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Well, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen well on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Now, uh, I'll also just say, uh, as, a, as somebody from Milwaukee, that's, I feel like that's where my preference uh, against IPAs. I, I'll, I'll take a good you, glass you were, of champagne. You were ruined. Yeah, you were ruined by uh, Milwaukee beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. ruined by Wisconsin, ruined by the the champagne of beers, which is is generally my preference (laughs) in in any uh, context. But on that note, hope you guys all have a great weekend and stay safe. And we, as always, really appreciate you tuning in to another edition of Rising Fridays. Mm